Never before and never since has the city of Byron, Peach County, or even the state of Georgia seen such a crowd and experienced an event like the second Atlanta International Pop Festival. Hello, I'm Ben Sandifer. 20 years ago, we produced a special syndicated radio program for the festival's 30th anniversary. This special 50th anniversary retrospective includes excerpts from interviews with the people who made it happen, the people who wanted it stopped, some of the major acts who played there, and the controversy surrounding this event. Since then, many of the people we talked to 20 years ago have passed away, and we dedicate this podcast to their memory and the roles each one played in this historic event. Also, because of licensing and copyright restrictions, we're only able to bring you a few seconds of each of the songs that were in the original program. Now let's look back 50 years ago over the 4th of July weekend of 1970. The small middle Georgia town of Byron grew by somewhere between 300,000 and a half million rock and roll fans. It was a year after the first Atlanta Pop Festival and 11 months after Woodstock. Though it was billed as the second annual Atlanta International Pop Festival, most people in middle Georgia who remember the event still call it the Byron Pop Festival. It took place in and around the middle Georgia raceway at highways 41 and 49 just outside of Byron, Georgia in Peach County. We recently spoke with Tim Thornton, who now owns a property where the pop festival was held. Tim was just 17 years old, but still played an important role in the festival then. My parents never would have allowed me to come to the pop festival had they known, in spite of the fact it turned out to be very peaceful. But a man that worked for my father in real estate also had a side business of neighborhood ice cream trucks. And he hired me, paid me 50 bucks, which is big money to a high school kid back then in 1970. And I drove, I came in here a day before, drove a little little ice cream Jeep kind of thing in here with an ice cream box on it. Nothing but popsicles. The guy had told me, he said, now look, you're probably not going to be able to get in and out. You better take you a little pup tin and some cans of soup and so forth. Take whatever you want to eat or drink because it may not, not be easy to get down there so I did and sold out the first day so I just stayed after that first day and it was hot I think it was actually literally over a hundred degrees those two or three days it was pretty interesting very peaceful in spite of the masses of people I didn't see the the first uh, fight or brawl and no, nobody got there I was a kid with a box full of money and uh, nobody tried to uh, hold me up for a popsicle or get my little money box or anything. It was amazingly peaceful, and, uh, but it was quite a party there for three days. On Tuesday, June 30th, three days before the festival opened, the crowd already on hand at the racetrack was estimated at 5,000. Within the next 24 hours, the crowd more than tripled. A full day before the first band even took the stage, the crowd was 100,000 strong, and two major problems were already surfacing, traffic and heat. 
As far as three miles away from the festival site, I-75, US-41, and Georgia-49 were bumper-to-bumper and moving no faster than a crawl. With temperatures soaring above 100 degrees, first aid tents were soon overrun with sunburn-related problems. By the time the festival opened on Friday, July 3rd, the crowd had swelled to around 200,000. Parking and camping areas around the festival were filled beyond capacity. At 7.30 p.m., the Allman Brothers Band kicked off the music and played for two hours, even through a brief thundershower. At the time, the Allman Brothers were the only band signed to Macon-based Capricorn Records. Their self-titled debut album had been on the market for less than a year. Capricorn president Phil Walden said Byron was a key to launching the band's career. The Almonds were really starting to happen on a national level, and so there were a number of people that were curious and uh, really wanted to uh, see their performance, and then there was a lot of uh, regional pride, I believe, in, in uh, their performance there. There was a lot of uh, expectation about, about their performance, and uh, a lot of folks uh, were really looking forward to it. And they delivered. They delivered in a big, big way. One of the promoters of the Byron or Second Atlanta Pop Festival was Alex Cooley. He was responsible for the first Atlanta Pop Festival, held one year earlier at the Atlanta Motor Speedway in Hampton. We never really made any money on any of the pop festivals. They're just too huge and too hard to handle. But I, I did the first one with 17 partners, and I wanted to do one you know, where there weren't so many people involved. We decided to, to do that, me and a couple of other people. And so we, uh, we went and did one in Texas and learned a lot more. And then we decided to do one back in Atlanta or close to Atlanta. And we didn't want to go back to Hampton in that raceway, so we came to Byron. We skipped the light fandango. Turns cartwheels across the floor. Procol Harum was one of two British groups who played the Byron Pop Festival. Other opening night acts included Goose Creek Symphony, Ball and Jack, the Hampton Grease Band, and Radar. The event more than tripled its expected crowd of 100,000. Advanced tickets for all three days of music were $14 with no single-day tickets sold. A week before Byron opened, the promoters announced that tickets would also be sold at the gate for $18. By the time the festival opened, every available motel room on I-75 between Tifton and Atlanta had been taken. Many concert goers seeking the full experience of the three-day event took advantage of free camping in an area around the festival site called Whispering Pines. But the campers soon outgrew this area and began setting up temporary housing on private property and along the major highways leading to the area. 
Sharon Thunderberg was 16 years old at the time. Her father, Virgil Shepard, owned a farm of several hundred acres across from the festival site on Highway 49. The farm was loaded with people. There really was very little spare room on the grounds for people to sleep. They were out in the pastures, they were in the yards, they were in the pine tree groves. My father had a convertible Camaro, and he and I hopped in that Camaro, drove down to the Marita Dale Bakery thrift store, and loaded into that Camaro as many loaves of bread as we could conceivably pour into that car. and came home, drove through the Whispering Pines area, and passed out loaves of bread. Thrill is gone. The thrill is gone away. One of the opening day acts at Byron was B.B. King, a Memphis blues singer and guitar player who'd been around since the 1940s, but had only recently found success with a mass audience. One of the more popular spots in the festival area was nearby Ichikani Creek. At any given time, 500 or more people could be seen in the creek with and without clothing, seeking relief from the brutal middle Georgia July heat. When word of this sideshow spread throughout the Middle Georgia area, sightseers soon jammed the bridges and roads around the creek area. Former Bibb County Sheriff Ray Wilkes was chief deputy at the time. It's a wonder that somebody hadn't got killed there because they were jumping from the bridge in some shallow water. And, uh, and that was the first experience that everybody took the clothes off of the festival group and, and just walked the roads and so forth naked and you never really noticed whether they had clothes on or not. You'd seen so many of them. I had a dream last night. What a lovely dream it was. I dreamed we all were all right. Happy in a land of ours. John B. Sebastian, whose greatest success came as a frontman for The Lovin' Spoonful, was one of the acts that played both Byron and Woodstock. Because there were people at Byron from all over the country, the Western Union office in Macon experienced much higher than normal business during the pop festival. Fran Kane worked the 3 to 11 shift during that memorable weekend. We did have um, a lot of people having money wired to them from different locations all over the country. At that time, uh, $500 was a lot of money, uh, but we did have uh, some people come in, you know, and get five to $10,000, and uh, they didn't look like they could afford it any more than I could at that time. And I was often wondered about, you know, uh, what they were using this money for. The New York-based power rock group Mountain was riding high on the charts with Mississippi Queen at the time of the Byron Pop Festival. Shortly after 10 o'clock on the festival's opening night, 
A crowd of several thousand crashed the gate and turned the event into a huge free concert, similar to what had happened 11 months earlier at Woodstock. Georgia's Governor Lester Maddox did not have the authority to stop the Byron Pop Festival, but he urged Middle Georgia racetrack owner Lamar Brown to cancel the event. Brown ignored the governor's request, and by Saturday, July 4th, the second day of the festival, the crowd was somewhere between 300,000 and half a million strong. This Byron open-air music fest was also a socio-political event, according to local historian Gene Alvarez, who wrote articles about the Byron Pop Festival for the magazine Georgia Journal. The backdrop for all of this was Vietnam, and so a lot of the rock festivals, such as this one, uh, were in protest to the Vietnam War. Also, drugs was the thing. A lot of people say that drugs was brought into this area from the rock festival. I, I question that. But uh, you had uh, cultural revolution, the uh, sexual revolution was in, uh, LSD sandwiches. Uh, uh, as one person said, the people who came to the rock festival wanted to come out and have a good time and uh, uh, just get naked. Never The Detroit-based band Rare Earth performed on the second day of the second Atlanta International Pop Festival. Show promoters gave up all hope of restoring order at the gate and collecting the $18 for tickets. After the crashed gate from the night before was repaired, the crowd threatened to rip down the wooden fences surrounding the 120-acre festival site. So Byron became just one huge free concert. All right, uh, I have an announcement. This gate over here has been opened, and this gate over here should be open now. And uh, that means something else. That means that we're all going to have to take care of each other. And uh, it, it probably means that the promoter is going to be losing money, so it probably means we're going to take some collections to get water in and to get every, keep everything going for the three days. Think about that and take care of each other because uh, the, the gates are just wavering, you know, and nobody wants to exclude anybody. The crowd had also overgrown the designated campsites as well as the Ichikani Creek. Those seeking relief from the heat began to overrun motel swimming pools in the area. Before long, they found the privately owned Vinson Valley Lake. Kitty Vinson Pullen's family operated the Vinson Valley Recreation Area then. My daddy was here at the, at the time and with his workers, and um, when they started gathering at the gate and along the fence and um, you know, shaking it, wanting to come in. Well, he didn't. He didn't want to have uh, be taken over. So he had his, his lifeguards sitting out there with shotguns at one point, because nobody was shot or anything. But you know, just to, to hopefully stop them from taking over. But um, finally, they they got all along the fence and they and they uh, they, they picked the gate up. I think there was so many of them that they picked the gate up, uh, and then and they also cut it cut it down the way. They cut a somehow that somebody had a, some wire cutters I guess and cut the fence, the chain length fence and they cut it and thousands just you know came in and they you know um, they just had it for about three days and the police were here but they didn't do anything to stop them because they feel like they couldn't and they were, didn't, a lot of them didn't have clothes on, they didn't know, I don't reckon they knew whether they had clothes on or not because they were drugged anyhow the police just assured us that they'd be out, they'd be gone in a few days so in other words just to let them have it 
because we lost the business for the weekend, which would have been our best business. The Mississippi-based Chambers Brothers were one of Byron's second-day acts on the 4th of July. There were plenty of people in the multitude who came just for the music, like Mike Causey, who was later a member of the Capricorn band Stillwater. Um, I was probably about 16 years old, and Warner Robins at the time, we were about probably 10 minutes from there, and we just, we'd go out and stay for most of the evening. There were so many people, it was hard to get to the front of the stage. We were probably, I'm going to say, two football fields from the from the stage. And I kept the ticket stub for all these years. I stuck it in a drawer at the house. And when the Music Hall of Fame opened, they, I called them and asked them if they wanted that for any particular reason to put it on exhibit. And I loaned it to them. Jimi Hendrix was the highest paid performer at the Byron Pop Festival. At midnight on the 4th of July, Hendrix and his band provided the soundtrack to the fireworks show with their version of the Star Spangled Banner they had introduced at Woodstock. Byron happened 50 years ago. There was no such thing as CNN, Fox News, MTV, or VH1, and the three television networks barely mentioned the event. But local and statewide coverage was a different story. Jess Branson was part of Macon's broadcast media then. I was in news at the time at uh, WBML, and uh, of course, the mayor had already given his infamous shoot to kill order the uh, black liberation front was boycotting downtown you really didn't know what the summer held but i know that we felt like we had to report to the people what was going on at the byron pot festival i drove through there it took about two hours as i recall up to the main part of the area and then it was really tough getting on up into where everything was happening but the most interesting thing I thought was everybody you met there were just as nice as they could be. They, I was in a convertible. They were passing out fans or just anything they could do to help. You better think twice about leaving me behind. Make up your mind about what you're going to do. You know it ain't easy. The L.A. country rock band called Poco. Some of the other performers in Byron on day two included Lee Michaels, Blood Rock, Cat Mother and the All Night Newsboys, Cactus, and Gypsy. Byron's police chief in those days was Terry Joyner. They kind of just took over the city. I mean, there were so many people, and I was the only police officer there as far as the city of Byron police. What was interesting was during the time that the crowd was really in Byron, I hired some of the Galloping Geese motorcycle gang that was down here. There was approximately 50 of them that were camped out up there at the festival. And we hired five of these guys to patrol the city of Byron. And these so-called hippies at the time were scared of these motorcycle people. 
And the whole time that the Byron Festival was going on, we didn't have one burglary in the city of Byron. After the festival was over, we had 62 stolen automobiles that were left abandoned in the area down there where these people had stole them up north and all over and drove them here to the festival and abandoned them and left them. Well, the dawn was coming, heard him ringing on my bed. They say my name's a teacher, or oh, that is what I Jethro Tull was one of the groups that was scheduled to appear at Byron, but canceled at the last minute. Other no-shows who had been advertised to be at the festival were Captain Beefheart, Ginger Baker's Air Force, Ravi Shankar, Country Joe and the Fish, Judy Collins, and Sly and the Family Stone. The pop festival not only attracted the anti-war movement, but also those in the military stationed nearby at Robbins Air Force Base. Those like Jack McKean, who was there for the music. It was uh, the best outdoor music I think I've ever heard before or since. And there were all these things that none of us had seen before. Us who had grown up in small Georgia towns, little rural areas, we'd never seen anything like this before. I can recall people uh, walking up to me, offering me, a hit of acid for a dollar, a joint of some really exotic marijuana for, I don't know, 50 cents or a buck. Uh, I remember there was a stand where they were selling pot plants. Uh, everything was just very open, and nobody really seemed to mind. I, I remember seeing uh, police in the area, but they just seemed uh, like they were kind of turning the other way. I, I think that if they really had another attitude, they would have probably been pretty much overwhelmed. Bob Seger, who went on to greater success in the late 70s and 80s, played the final day of the Byron Pop Festival with his group, the Bob Seger System. Mott the Hoople, Richie Havens, and Johnny Winter all played in Byron on day number three. On the final day of the event, a Sarasota, Florida woman was rushed by helicopter to the Macon Hospital when she went into labor. She gave birth to a four-pound, 11-ounce boy, appropriately named Byron. Some more thoughts about the huge crowd from festival promoter Alex Cooley. I don't know how many people we had, but at one time I went up in a helicopter and traffic was backed up from the side in Byron all the way up to the varsity in Atlanta. We did the kind of numbers, I believe, that are close to what Woodstock did. And you just can't, you can't deal with that. You can't deal with that many people. and You can't deal with them spending the night. The pop festival is now a thing of the past. The 
California band Spirit, whose only hit, I Got a Line on You, had peaked about 15 months before the Byron Pop Festival. Also during the spring of 1969, Capricorn Records was formed in Macon. Though the Almond Brothers Band was the only act signed to the label when the Byron Festival began, that would soon change as the event provided the invitation for Capricorn's second act to be signed, Wet Willie. Lead singer Jimmy Hall. So when we came here, that was going on. I mean, we just came here, went to that, and that was our first taste of this area. And it just blew our minds. I mean, it was just unreal. The Almond Brothers were playing, and all these great bands, and Grand Funk was playing, and, and all these hippies were in Georgia, and we just said, this is it. This is the best place this is happening. We're going to stay here. Everybody, listen to Grand Funk Railroad was signed by Capitol Records because of their performance the previous summer at the first Atlanta Pop Festival. They had three albums out by the time they played the second Pop Festival. After the gates were crashed and tickets could no longer be counted, it was impossible to get an accurate reading on the crowd. But whether it was 300,000, 400,000, a half million or more, this was the largest crowd ever assembled in Georgia. And this state record would remain intact for 26 years. Local historian Gene Alvarez. The thing that uh, truly impressed me was uh, Georgia having a gathering of this size and especially a small town like Byron. And we must remember that uh, Byron not too long ago was uh, really a two-lane little town and the growth we see today is just fairly recent but to imagine you're having approximately 300,000 kids and many adults too camped out in this area and just living in fields and so forth 300,000 that's more troops than Sherman had when he went through Georgia you know and as uh, some of us have often said probably uh, the Byron Rock Festival probably was the uh, greatest number of people attending any one event up to the Olympics. London-based band 10 Years After was one of the acts it played at Byron that it also performed at Woodstock. The Allman Brothers Band closed out the final day of the festival with another two-hour show. Their manager, Phil Walden. It was not uh, out of the ordinary for them to perform uh, uh, in excess of uh, two hours and, uh, and frequently in the three to four hour uh, sets. And... Uh, and I know on, on a couple of occasions when they played the uh, famed uh, Fillmore East in New York that uh, Bill Graham uh, uh, relayed to me a, a particular story that they were walking out of the Fillmore one morning as the sun was coming up and the Almonds had literally played the entire night.
The second Atlanta International Pop Festival in Byron officially ended at 10 o'clock on Monday morning, July 6, 1970. By the next day, only about a thousand people remained in the camping areas. Middle Georgia was left with a massive cleanup that took several weeks. Sharon Funderburg said that even 20 years later, an occasional reminder of the festival would turn up. We still, to this day, will find every now and then a, a shoe down in the woods. My daughter has found the, the tip of a shoe sticking up out of the ground, and uh, she's pulled them up, and it's got to be a shoe from the late 60s just by the style. So what has happened to the festival site after that memorable 4th of July weekend 50 years ago? Tim Thornton owns the property today. After the pop festival, they continued to have, I think they had NASCAR races for two more years. NASCAR dropped them, I believe, in 72. There was racing out here uh, up to about 82, and then concerts up to about 84. And the county shut it down at that time. And until I acquired the property in 2006, it, virtually nothing had been done out here except illegal dumping and illegal racing and probably other illegal activities. It was pretty pretty well abandoned when I bought it. But furthest thing from my mind was anything about, even though I grew up a race fan and attended the Pop Festival, I really bought it as a land investment. It's sitting on 80 acres of land. It fronts on two major highways, and the real estate market was very hot and wide open and residential developers were trying to buy this property but maybe it was somewhere in the back of my mind shortly after i got it uh, outfit out of south carolina called racers reunion approached me and said if you'll let us come in and do a racing reunion festival we will come in and clean it up and put it on for you we did that and it went well and that was the first of about four of those that we did and probably if it had not been for them I might have and if it had not been for the downturn in the economy that hit hard in 2008 I think things have a way of working out as they say as we got it cleaned up and did some other events and there was a lot of interest in the history and all then I began to think you know gosh it'd be a shame to tear this old place down so I, I kind of see myself as the is the temporary custodian of it till somebody comes along that's really got the vision and the energy and the pocketbook to do something with it. It's quite a landmark. So I'm committed to preserving it. And as part of that preservation, Tim Thornton spearheaded a project to erect an historical marker near the festival site in September 2012. Those are actually authorized and erected by the Georgia Historical Society. It has to be paid for by sponsoring nonprofits. So Byron Historical Society participated, the Big House, GABA, Hitting the Note um, magazine. But I, I was kind of the instigator behind that. Got that going. I'm very proud of it. But it's, it's actually on a permanent easement that I couldn't just go out there and say, well, I'm going to take that to my house. That'd be pretty neat. It's, it's there from, for eternity. Now we'll close out our special 50th anniversary podcast with some final thoughts from some of the people who were part of this historic event. For people that uh, love that kind of music, I don't think there's any place or anything that's happened before or after that could peak those performances. Just so many things happened during that time. It was just unbelievable to 
people who live around this area of the world don't never want to see it again. It was a neat thing to go to. Kind of a historic moment, you know, that many people come together, especially in middle of Georgia. It was thrilling to see these guys uh, get this sort of reaction in front of such a large crowd. I guess the Pop Festival is about the worst thing that happened to us. For people who came and behaved themselves, it was an experience they would remember for a lifetime. I've never seen a crowd like that. I've never been in a crowd like that, and I, I hope it don't ever happen again. Don't I don't think anything like that could ever happen and have it as peaceful a group as we had at that time. Law enforcement faced the first time an inability to deal with a situation. It was a lot better than any of us thought it would be. And it certainly brought the world into Middle Georgia's backyard for a little while. It was just incredibly peaceful for that time. I don't think you could replicate that today, even though I've had some other really good things happen and a few bad things happen over my 60-something years, but it ranks up there as one of the absolute most memorable and impressive things in my lifetime. For the 50th Anniversary Byron Pop Festival or Second Atlanta International Pop Festival podcast, I'm Ben Sandifer. <laughs>